Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women in 2020. People say that feminism rolls in waves, but black matriarchy has existed for 65,000 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mothers, grandmothers and aunties are leaders, trailblazers and politicians. Respected elders continue to teach love, justice, how to raise children, how to work, how to survive and how to resist. This enthralling conversation celebrates the wisdom of powerful black women and it's hosted by my colleague, the head of First Nations programming here at the Sydney Opera House, Rhoda Roberts. My granddaughter's put... um this welcome on an iPad. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it is funny. Just bear with me. <laughs> I've got it written on a hard copy in the bag, but I'm going to try this. Here we go. Open up, you sod of a thing. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. <laughs> I, I tell you, this uh, I, 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 um, I am a Wiradjuri Koori Balang, and Balang in my language is woman. And this older Wiradjuri Koori Balang, certainly not real deadly when it comes to these, these new IT stuff, eh? <laughs> but the blessing is grandchildren, you know? <laughs> Today, we all gather on the land of the mighty Eora Nation. My name is Anne Weldon. Actually, I was born Anne Coe from Cow in New South Wales, that notorious family that certainly, they don't like taking backward steps, they go forward. My ancestral bloodline certainly connects all along the lands and the waters of the Clare and the Murrumbidgee rivers in the mighty Wiradjuri country. I'm a member of Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, uh, New South Wales Elder of the Year in, 19, in 2015 for Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council and Elder for my family as well. For people that are not aware, Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council is the cultural authority under the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act here in this particular part of your country. And this morning I certainly bring you a message of respect and caring. And it is important to acknowledge this country's rich and original and first story. And I would like to pay my respects to all elders, past and present, of all Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal nations and communities here today and express my gratitude for the sacrifices made by our elders to create a better quality of life for all peoples of our country. And it is indeed a humble privilege to provide a welcome to country for me, It is a profound honour and a luxury of time. Time that has been given by you and time that has been given by many warriors that started the traditions for everyone. A welcome isn't just words, it's a reflection of where we are. The boundaries of traditional owners are not defined by the hand and a pen, but through the natural landscapes of our incredible earth. And the Eora Nation's country spans from the Hawkes River to the north, the Nepean to the west, and the Georges River to the south. So on behalf of Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, with their permission and our members, I welcome everybody to the land. 
of the Maitiora Nation and Gadigal people. And I acknowledge the Gadigal people's spirits and ancestors who will always with, remain within our Mother Earth. And whenever you travel across this beautiful continent of ours, you are entering the lands of a nation, a tribe and a clan. And we have existed and belonged to these lands that stretches far beyond 60,000 years. First Nations of this land, we are the most diverse, unique and sustainable people on the planet. And we are the oldest living culture of the world. And it is important to acknowledge this country's rich first and original history. So let me pay homage to the many warriors that created pathways for all of us, the ones recognised and the ones that you have never heard of. And our journeys and milestones will only be realised if we can see, if we can feel and if we can be a positive difference put into real action. And we must commit to making our world, our society and breaking through barriers, not creating them. But all of us together can bring about positive changes to multiple generations, starting with the healing of our past generations and by declaring what should not have taken place to the present day generations, giving them hope. For our creators have shown us a way to creating a better future for the next generation, for everyone in our country. And we as First Nations, we've not only survived, we are surviving, but we're also thriving. But sadly, the lessons have been learned at our expense and at our devastation should and must be acknowledged. And the struggles, survivals and the dreams of our ancestors must and should be recognised as Australia's history. But to listen, learn and to come together to heal and prevent heartaches from ever happening again. So as you connect, learn and share today, tomorrow and beyond, don't live regretting what should have been done, but create a legacy of what must be done. For our future is only as good as our history. And we here in Australia need to reflect upon the footsteps that we are all leaving to know where we are heading. Shaping a world that we can all be very proud of. And the truth needs to be told, but it must be heard if we are to walk together. So join me by learning from the ancient and living teachings of these lands, First Peoples. And we can all draw upon my people's spirit as we continue on our journey. For we believe our ancestors' spirits walk beside us, guiding us and light our way. And we ask that you walk beside us. Please do not walk ahead of us. And allow Aboriginal people to share the wealth and the prosperity that our country has to offer. For in doing this, instead of people constantly making decisions for us, it will allow us to reach our destinies and create our own pathways. I've got to say, um, happy International Women's Day. Um, I actually come from a long line of staunch and very strong Wiradjuri Kori Balang, so our, we are matriarchal. And believe you me, um, the women in my family have certainly left their mark and given us the strength to go beyond, far beyond all level of expectation. I've got to say that my journey certainly hasn't been one that's been a, a pleasant road. I was born in a segregated section of Cowra District Hospital and lived under the regime of a mission manager where we certainly were controlled. And the brutality of racism, it didn't weak us, weaken us, it made us strong. 
So I thank you for allowing me to be here today at this incredible uh, event. I feel very honoured to stand before these deadly women that are sitting over here to my right and no doubt all of the deadly women. And, and, and if there are brave men in the audience, you know, it's wonderful. <laughs> don't we don't fear them, don't fear us, you know. But I am a proud, as I said, a Wiradjuri Balang, a mother of three daughters, a grandmother of 11, and a great-grandmother of a deadly, handsome little boy. <laughs> I've got to say, it is to strong women. May we know them, may we be them, and may we raise them, because I certainly know I raised three. So once again, on behalf of Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, welcome to the land of the mighty Eora Nation and Gadigal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you very, very much. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Opera House, Jubagali, as it was known and is known by the Gadigal peoples. Auntie Anne, thank you very much for that wonderful welcome and your insight mm. into many things. <laughs> well, we have a great panel this afternoon, and um, my name is Rhoda Roberts. I'm the head of Indigenous programming here at the Sydney Opera House, um, but I'm a widgeable woman from the Northern Rivers, Southeast Queensland, Bundjalung Territories. I come from a line of 3,000th generation women, and many of them were matriarchs. But I think one of the biggest things that we would all possibly agree, the greatest matriarch is Mother Earth. Mm. And we've witnessed very recently the challenges that she faced. And when those tall timbers burnt, she was able to replenish and build new budding green leaves. And I, when I was looking at the panel today and thinking about the extraordinary families and legacy that all these amazing sisters come from, I thought of those tall timbers and the trauma that is across our communities. They get blackened and scarred but they continue to grow and bud new leaves. And so the granddaughters of these great matriarchs sit amongst us. So let me introduce you to them. On my left is Bibi Baba, the gorgeous young Amelia Kunath Monks, Celeste Little and Curly Saunders. Thank you, ladies. I'm gonna start with you, Curly, right at the end there. <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about your nation and who you are amongst those women. Thank you. Nia Curly Saunders, acknowledge me, Rini Gananukang, Gadigal Madung Burungiling, Didjirigurani, Ni Ganai, Yuan Ganangara, Birapai, Gadigal Burungiling, Fra Yowang Dui. So thank you, Annie Anne. I'd also like to acknowledge Gadigal ancestors um, and also to acknowledge my ancestors. So uh, Curly is the Aboriginal name for a black and white bird that lives on the water. 
and my family are Gunai people. Stephen's from around East Gippsland in Victoria. Moved up into Ewan country where my mum was born and raised. Um, she was removed and raised as a state ward in children's homes and landed in Gunungara country. So I was born and raised um, on Gunungara country. And then on my grandfather's side, we're Biripai people, raised um, around Tauri, moved on to the mission at La Perouse. So saltwater people through and through that whale dreaming. Dreaming, that's mine as well. And um, in some way, the sandstone stories of Gadigal country have become mine as well. Thank you. Wonderful. And from the salt waters of the East Coast to the Red Heart, which once had, was full of water, let me introduce you to Celeste Little. Okay. Um, I, before I say anything, I too wanted to acknowledge the um, Gadigal people of the Eora, Eora Nation. Sorry. I'm having an attack of nerves, which is unusual. Don't, darling. <laughs> there are only white pay... people out there. They won't hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that we're sitting on these unceded lands. So I thank you very much for the privilege of being allowed to speak on them. Mm -hmm. um, as an Aranda woman from Central Australia, um, I, I was actually born on Ngunnawal country in, mm. in um, the ACT and I've lived on Wurundjeri country now um, down in down in Nam, um, Melbourne, Victoria for 27 years but um, yeah my the, the matriarch that I probably most refer to would probably be my my um, grandmother Emily um, who was a woman who was so staunch and so respected that when we held her funeral um, and we're telling all the stories, including how she used to um, go to the football to cheer on, the local football to cheer on her nephews and end up abusing both sides because she had <laughs> nephews on both sides of the ground. Um, but, you know, taught herself to read when she was in her 30s. She was a stolen gen woman who, um, who had been a domestic, put into a domestic placement as a kid, um, she'd, she'd given birth to, well, she had 11 um, children and when, when she passed away, her family and her, the respect for this woman was so big that they had to shut down all of the streets um, down the main, um, main drag of Alice Springs to let her funeral cortege go through. So she was this incredible strong woman who never gave up and... and you know, kept a kept a family under extraordinary circumstances. Um, later, as a single mother as well. <laughs> well, one of our greatest living matriarchs is out in Utopia, and she made a stance once on Q and A by saying, "I am not the problem." Let me introduce you to her granddaughter, Amelia Kunath Monks. Mm. What a legacy, Amelia. Tell us about your country, darling. Um, I would like to acknowledge the First Nations people's lands that we are on, the Gadigal Nation, and also the past, present and future leaders that are coming. Um, I'm Amelia Kunath Monks. I'm from a place called Utopia, so Isan Aranda Maichira. And the place out there is so timeless that it hasn't aged into the newest modern technology. We still live in our homelands, so there's 16 homelands. And what I can say about my homeland is that my people and my grandmother still live in their world of where it is old. And they are trying to combat with or trying to merge with the new ways 
of living. And to see that happen, for them to come more than halfway, is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Especially with the women leading the front. So, with my grandmother saying she is not the problem and all that, it, it amazes me and it gives me the strength to get up and speak on behalf of my people. Thank you, Amelia. And to Queensland, Bibi Barber's grandmother <laughs> was quite an extraordinary woman, as Norman Tyndale indicated in his writings. Bibi, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about Waka Waka Country? And First and foremost, I'd like to acknowledge um, the Eora people, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past, present and emerging. emerging. My grandmother, Doreen May Barber, is just an incredible legacy for, for, for me as, as a human being. Because without her and her fight and her struggles, I wouldn't be the woman I am today. And she's left um, a foundation of strength and vitality. But also, too, she's enabled me to, you know, grow in adversity. She made me feel that, you know, whenever anything's negative, turn into a positive. Mm -hmm. And I think my story, will, 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 will talk about that more often, well, today. But, I mean, she was a stolen generation. She was born on the banks of um, Yapoon in Queensland and um, near Rockhampton. And she grew up at Sherberg Mission. And, obviously, her mother and her grandmother would, would see her from a distance. And um, she would often, you know, talk in lingo, but then in those times, you weren't allowed to speak language. So to try and keep that cultural life in her and to pass it to the next generation, it was a very hard task to do. But you see, art, art is an incredible medium to translate and to inspire. And she's definitely done that with me because one thing she said that shaped my career as an artist and designer was she got to go home to feel your country, to paint it. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. So along with these great lines of grandmothers, it's extraordinary what our women are doing today. You know, we have scientists, astrophysicists, doctors, lawyers, dentists. Every walk of life there is an Aboriginal woman leading or often having to be the pioneer to go through that new territory of industry. And it's incredible if I look at these four amazing sisters and if you hear what they do and how they've used that strength and that voice of what they've learnt on community to do the things they do. So I might go back to you, Bibi. Sure. One of the biggest things, I guess, that came to our attention a few years ago, mm -hmm. and it was quite extraordinary, mm. and perhaps because you were a little bit older, you were able to question uh, uh, a terrible event that occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're an artist, but you also work as an administrator, uh, Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm studying law and um, the story behind the, the reason why I'm studying law is because what happened in Poland. And I will call it stolen in Poland. And um, seven years ago, now I've been painting for 32 years. So, divorced, come back to Sydney because I grew up in Sydney. And um, I thought, well, you know, it, it's about getting back into the commercial industry and um, obviously getting my work out there, because I was quite well-known in Queensland. So seven years ago, I decided to have an exhibition, a collection, 
of Flowers of the Desert. And this was based on my grandmother's knowledge of passing down bush medicine. So as an artist, a designer, I, I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll feed on that information because it's knowledge being passed down, traditional knowledge. And I created this beautiful, beautiful yellow piece of artwork that's called Flowers of the Desert. Now, lo and behold, me and my sister who lives over in Kirribilli, five, ten houses down from the Prime Minister of, of Australia, she had happened to have a, a, a brand new iPhone one, one week, and she said one day, she said, well, let's Google myself. I thought, oh, let's just see what's out there in, in the cyberspace. <laughs> As you do. And so, you know, we're sitting down having a nice glass of wine, you know, at seven o'clock at night, and um, she said, oh, yeah, let's have a look. Let's check out the gadget. So I said, OK, I'll Google myself because I'm getting my website done. Lo and behold, flicking through these pages, there was this little window of a hotel room. And I recognised the carpet. And I thought, that's my work. But I couldn't read it because it was in Polish. But I recognised the artwork. So I clicked on the link, and lo and behold, voila, 44-room hotel in Domyslaw, Poland. Panelling installation, tabletops and glass. It looked stunning. <laughs> I, thought, oh. I thought, wow, this is... I'm pretty good, eh, you know? <laughs> so I thought, what? And then I thought, the reality hit then, it just sunk in, thing. far out, what am I going to do? So what happened was I was a, I'm a member of copyright agency, so I just gave them a call. Um, hi, this is what's going on in Poland. Well, they were mortified, absolutely gut-wrenching. Well, how am I going to do this? Because, see, I had no, obviously, understanding of how the law works, let alone in the copyright industry. How do you protect yourself as an artist within that field? So I actually started to learn about, well, how does this work? Hence is why I'm studying law. But also, too, it enabled me to, to protect my cultural knowledge, mm -hmm. to protect my grandmother's legacy, because you've got to fight, and that's what she's been she's done all her life, was fight. And being part of the Norman Tyndale collection when she was 10, you know, I mean, looking at uh, 81 years later, an artwork that she'd done on, in crayon on butcher's paper that's in the South Australia um, Museum archives, I mean, that was just the beginning of understanding who she was. And the thing about this story is, incredibly, even today, the assumptions of what an Aboriginal woman, or indeed what an Aboriginal is, mm. is uh, quite unbelievable sometimes. So here's a woman in Poland, done a hotel up, looking fabulous in her work. And what did she assume you were? Well, this is interesting because her probably first inclination of what is an Aboriginal person woman would be a person sitting in the desert underneath the gum tree doing dot work, not realising that, hey, we're in the 21st century. Mm. I've got a gadget. I've got a phone. <laughs> I've, got a, mm. <laughs> I've got a laptop. I've got a computer. And you're drinking wine in And I'm drinking wine in Kirribilli. <laughs> <laughs> But it goes to show, without that voice, 
that would never have occurred. And of course, you're quite successful with that case. Quite successful. And it's been taken seven years at this point. So each, each of their, what I had to do is learn their international law and had to learn their structure in their domestic um, you know, court arena. And so we're seven years in. It takes you 18 months to even get him and recognised. Mm -hmm. But because of the, the struggle and the fight, you know, it, it's, it's part of life. And it can be very stressful, but you turn that stress, as we do, as multitask, we stressed every day as women, we turn into a positive. And I think with the spirit of my grandmother and my mother, she, she, she's an incredible artist, a ceramic artist in her own right, and she always says to me, well, I'm award-winning. <laughs> <laughs> Mum, you're amazing. <laughs> I love you. But it's those women, you know, passing that down. And it's just an honour to, to, to be here today and with an incredible panel and an incredible leader mm. in our community, Rhoda. Mm. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a lot of issues today and we see more and more women, women working in areas of social justice, such as our Social Justice Commissioner, June Oscar. Incredible, amazing the work she's done. And that work is continuing at Utopia. Amelia, just tell us a little bit of the social justice work you do in your role out there. Well, my role out there is to explain to people what has happened, especially with my grandmother, because Nan has the language, so she can explain that. So one of the most social injustices that happened in the Northern Territory was the Northern Territory emergency response back in 2007. And my mum and grandmother explained to me that they had to explain what pornography was to the men. And the men were so gobsmacked and shocked because in our social structure, our men turn into mothers and aunties. So they, they become my mothers, my aunties, my sisters. They may be a different gender to me, but they are still classified as my mothers. And with that, explaining that, it just it shows how much utopia is so far removed from the rest of Australia. And I mean, you can see that right throughout the territory because all them, all them little communities there were just hit with this wave and told to, and all the men were told they were pedophiles when that wasn't true. So you might remember back in the Howard um, period, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs was a gentleman called Mal Bruff. And this was implemented during his portfolio. It was labelled the intervention, but over the last 20 years, it's had numerous names. Yeah, right now it's under the name of Stronger Futures, which was the Julia Gillard era. So, <laughs> but Stronger Futures for whom exactly? What can embedder our future? Because we are slowly losing our language, and I mean, I've always found it so... Empower, empowering that the East Coast women and men, even though they were hit first, they have stood up and fought against colonisation and assimilation. 
it, it empowers me to absolutely push that through. And the worst thing that a non-Indigenous person has ever done was teach us the English language <laughs> and given us the knowledge mm. to fight back. Mm. Because look out, we're, we're coming. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that because there's a couple of new terminologies that are being used in communities and uh, it will make you laugh as well as make you very sad to hear that this continues in areas that are so dislocated like many of our communities. Now, Celeste, you write about that trauma and that dislocation. You also are very fervent about the union and can you just tell us a little bit about the work you do and how it's got you there from to Melbourne? <laughs> I, I, the work that I do, I want to say, was, has been a bit of an accidental project mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I, I went to uni straight out of high school. I was one of only, um, I believe, that year, so this is... 97, I believe I was one of only about 17, 18 Aboriginal students across the entire state of Victoria to finish year 12 and go straight into uni. Mm. So that's number one. Um, the fact that I started as a science student studying rocks and ended up with an honours in theatre and drama makes no sense. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's number one accidental pathway. But I started working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander student support when I finished uni because I wanted to help other people get through that university system, which is so incre incredibly privileged and white and masculine, even though more women than men have been going to uni for years, it's still really, it, it's so elitist and it still really preferences the voices of white men in those, in those, um, those halls, those towers, the ivory towers and whatever else people describe them. So I wanted to help people there, but... I'd had my own battles through uni. What I didn't realise when I started working in the sector itself was that the, the issues that I'd had as, as a student were the exact same issues that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff were having working in the sector. And, of course, they were, you know, getting, getting our knowledge as recognised as equal, getting, um, getting our voices and our qualifications. You know, we can have doctors and doctors... Ugh, doctorates coming out the wazoo and they're still not seen as being as good as or even better than a white dude with a doctorate. It's seen as being lesser or concessional all the time. So, so I got involved in the union to start fighting back against that and then I ended up working in the union movement. Um, so that happened. I was then... Um, I then, you know, one day after speaking to... Cause Social media was a really good networker of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly women, across big, vast distances of the country. So we're all connecting online and forming networks. So you just said um, teaching us English language. This was one of the first mistakes. I reckon giving us social media so we could network yeah. over distances <laughs> was another. Um, I was talking to a couple of really staunch Aboriginal women that I'd met through... Um, 
another sort of intellectual property thing that had happened online. It was more, it was in, more informal, but it was that whole sort of trying to pull knowledge back. And I said, I'm thinking about starting this this blog about Aboriginal feminism, you know, and all of that. And they gave, they said, you should do that. You should have a go. Um, so I started it and um, six weeks after I started it, it was read by an editor of one of the major um, news, news organisations in the country. And it's from then that I've been an opinion writer, a social commentator, I'm also a columnist now. Um, I didn't mean to do any of that. The amount of times I've been asked by people, how, did, how, do, how do I become a writer? And I go, I've got no idea. <laughs> it just happened. But, um, but the one thing that I really did feel when I got into it was that the need to hold that space was incredibly important because, like I said, with universities, this commentary field, the, the media is so white, so masculine, so privileged that any space that we can hold, even if you know, I hold this space and there's a bunch of Aboriginal people who disagree with me, that's really important to mm. keep that because the dialogue happening in front of um, everyone else, non-Indigenous people, seeing us engage in our discussions on our terms is incredibly important to them because they're so used to dictating to us how things should be going and how, how we should be living lives and how we should be giving knowledge. Um, they've got a lot to learn from hearing our dialogues and hearing how it is that we talk about ourselves, about our rights, about our, our cultures, our lands, you know. Um, so holding that space and continuing to hold it for people to, um, if they do gain inspiration from it, but also for people to disagree with it is why I'm still there. Mm. We need you there. Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, you can see the resilience that our women have learnt. And I often think that our black matriarchs would never possibly have given themselves a label or talked about it. It was simply their obligation and their job as country women. And we see the resilience, but now what we're seeing is this whole new generation of young women. And Curly, I've got to say, absolutely inspirational. I know my grandmother would never believe it was possible mm -hmm. that we could, one, be sitting on a stage and having our own voice and our lens Ooh. heard. Ooh. But to see what you're doing, do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about that journey through the ivory tower to where you got today? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to start by saying, Aunt, I'm, um, we're renovating our house at the moment and when we need some yellow carpet, I'm going to give you a call. <laughs> <laughs> So I wear multiple hats during my work week. Um, for three days I work at Red Room Poetry in a non-for-profit where we aim to make poetry a meaningful part of everyday life. One day a week I work at an, in an early childhood centre at Kids Uni in Wollongong and then on my other day I'm an artist and a poet and an author and I go and kind of create things which is probably my happiest space to be in. And um, this multi-hat wearing week um, was probably founded in around the age of 22 when I sat with some elders and I was really lost. I'd studied primary teaching and I said to them, you know, I don't know what to do. I want to write these stories and I want to be this, this creative spirit, but I also feel like I need to be a teacher. And they talked me through the dreaming, which on Gunungara country we called Dui. Um, and they said, Bub, 
and I'm, I don't mean to butcher it or simplify it, but because um, it's obviously a very complex system and very different for all um, cultures and, and for every person, but essentially a non-hierarchical way of being and knowing and um, a, a spiritual path that we follow in and find comfort in. And um, it has, it, I was told by you and elders and Gangari elders, has three parts. And the first is to take care of ourself, take care of, um, of country, sorry. So Gamuang Da'awi, Mother Earth. And that um, in caring for country, we are reminded that um, her, her beauty, her intuition, her wisdom, chaos, calm, all of everything that makes Mother Earth incredible, we are her. We've embodied her, and for as long as we are born from her and we live with her and we die to her, there is relationship and a synergy, um, and that this part involves also eating country, and when we ingest Mother Earth, she in turn becomes part of us, and her, her magic and her wisdom is put forth in everything we do. The second part was to take care of ourself, and by caring for ourselves, with connecting to country and culture and identity, community, being strong within who we are, then we're able to give our best self for community. And the third part was to give your gift to community. And, um, and I said, well, Uncle, I'd, what's my gift? He said, oh, bub, you're the storyteller and the artist. Go and tell the story. Go and be the teacher. Make sure everybody knows that they've got to follow their dreaming. So um, I feel really fortunate that, like the wonderful women on this panel, that um, from a young age I think I had people pointing me out and saying, hey, Bob, here's a pack of pencils. Go and make that beautiful art. And it's exciting to be pursuing art in my life at the moment. Um, but I was sitting on the banks of the Shoalhaven River when I could hear the sounds of ancestors singing. And I'm not sure if you've had that experience, but when it's your first time, it's pretty scary. You're like, oh, man, I'm going mental. I called my auntie, Auntie Trish. I, I, I can hear these voices. And she goes, oh, good, bub, good. What do they say? And I'm like, good? <laughs> this is terrifying. She goes, well, if you don't know what they're saying, then they're, they're telling you it's time to go and learn language. Um, and I mentioned before my mum was removed from country, so she was raised um, yeah, on, on Gunagara land and by white people, um, thankfully dedicated and kind white people, but um, people who believed that there was no space for cultural language or for even reconnecting to mob um, and being connected with her family or to the landscape. And so that disconnection has filtered in generationally through me and I didn't have access to language. So at 27, I started learning Gunagara and I called my artistic director, Dr. Tamron Bennett, a really phenomenal poet. If you don't know her, you should. Um, and I said, Tamron, I want to create a project where students get to learn First Nations languages and write poems in language. Um, and I... Whoops. So the program commissions poetry in first languages was born. Um, it commissions First Nations poets to go out and work with elders and custodians to learn language. And then they run workshops on country with school students in community. And um, they'll learn language through bush tucker, um, bush medicine, dance, art. We'll go for a walk on country. We'll hear dreaming stories. And then students will respond to a conservation project happening in the local area. So black cockatoos, the garrel, uh, one of my spirit birds is, or Naora further down south, is, um, is endangered. And students are writing poems about black cockatoos in Gunagara that get published on the back of buses and drive around town. Students get to see those poems, those languages being modern-day part of everyday life. Community gets to learn language and everybody gets to find out more about how they can plant some she-oaks and protect our black cockatoos. The project's been run and delivered in uh, 60 times, 60 different workshops, and um, we've worked across 15 languages, including up in the Northern Territory in ACT and in New South Wales. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. Congrats.
And very proudly, coming from the Bundjalung people, we are one of the few groups who've never lost our language. We've always had continuous language speakers. And one of the great things that happened a few years back in 2017, and still today, New South Wales is the only state or territory in the country that has legislated for the protection of Aboriginal languages, which is incredibly exciting because, as you hear, all the panellists have, have talked about their grandmothers and the language and the importance of language. And I think our languages enable us as people who live in the 21st century, to grasp the tangible and the intangible of what our country means to us, of who we are and the legacy and the obligations we have as Aboriginal people. And sometimes it's a juggle, carrying lots of different um, obligations and responsibility for community. And I think, Amelia, you're in that position as one of our youngest panellists. Mm. just want to pinch your cheeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but extraordinary because you, you've got the hugest footsteps to, to fill, mm. which you will do admirably. Mm. But I know it's when you rock up at work, it's not just coming and doing a nine-to-five job. You're carrying the care of grandma. You're carrying that kinship structure that is so complex that you have to learn because one day you will be the grandmother. Yeah. Can you tell us, like, I can't see Arnie Rosie sitting there going, I'm a feminist. What does feminism mean in utopia? Well, like I was explaining before, our men are women as well. So, I mean, since my grandmother now, she's in her 80s and she is officially genderless. So she's neither female nor male. I think feminism today, in today's day and age, has taken a whole new turn because we're so vicious to our men. Mm. Us women, we're so vicious to them. When us law holders, the men cannot, the young boys are not allowed out unless the women dance. So that social structure is still quite very strong out of Chitopia. And I remember that, that us women, until we say, yep, they're ready to come out, we'll dance for them now. Whereas in the feminist world, we're sort of like, oh, we don't need men. We, we've got balls of our own, we'll, we'll take the charge. It's like, hold on, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a man. <coughs> I wouldn't be born. So the structure of feminism out on country, out at Utopia, is completely different to the knowledge that is in the modern setting of where women are and always will be trying to challenge men and trying to be men themselves. It's like, hang on, back off from our men. Our, our men need us to support them. We're not on an equal footing anymore. What we're trying to do as women is surpass the men and become the bigger bosses, when that is not at on, on Utopia. Our men and women are so equal to one another. And for you, Celeste, it's interesting. Amelia mentioned dancing. And, of course, one of the proud things we know with the continuance 
of those rituals and ceremonies and inmars that occur out in the desert is our women paint up very proudly. Now, Celeste, in social media, and you're writing about our view of feminism, and you actually um, do a, a, a post that has those women dancing. Oh, um, yeah, this was, this was a bit of one of those things where I gained a bit of infamy without even meaning to, because I gave a um, keynote address, I think it was about four years ago, um, for International Women's Day. And one of the examples that I spoke about, because, you know, the intervention, um, as someone whose heritage is territory and has family living under intervention, but also has family not living under it, who think that they can judge the people living under it and vice versa, that dynamic, um, you have, plus the intervention being framed as, as what's saving women and children, but they completely cut women's and children's voices out from the communities that they were putting the intervention on top of. Um, talking about that and talking about um, how, how there'd been some union solidarity in a couple of communities, I, I spoke about that in this keynote address I um, gave, and that... That talk was then republished by New Matilda. Um, when New Matilda republished that talk, they used an image of, um, of dancers from, from the areas that um, had been working with these unions in order to build housing and build social structures in the wake of government devastation, you know. These people had no had rights stripped away and so communities were working with other groups in order to try and maintain rights and maintain um, housing and maintain everything else. So, so there was a thank you ceremony given the short of it to, um, to some unionists who had assisted this community and it was just women painted up doing their dancing to say thank you, to, say, to acknowledge that partnership, to acknowledge that. The, that, that I mean, sorry, that story, then um, the people who published it, New Matilda, found an image from that particular ceremony and published it with a header image. I put that on social media and next thing you know, a bunch of a bunch of trolls, right-wing trolls, reported my page over and over again for posting ironically, nudity on pornography on social media and got me kicked off the social media site seven times. Um, officially, it was only four, but I had about three accounts running that page to keep it going. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, the fact that the fact that here was a bunch of women who had been continuously made voiceless um, through the government policies and then they'd given ceremony and someone like me who has... Who has education, city privilege, financial privilege, all that going for a signal boosting about this important sort of um, event. And then they get silenced and I get silenced in order to try and maintain the status quo. Yeah, it was a bit despicable. Mm. Um, it's an interesting world walking between, because I do, you write, you're right, I write a lot about trauma, but I'm writing in a, a way that I can use the sorts of knowledges that I hold, plus... Um, the white city sort of privilege that I can work within in order to signal boost what, uh, what um, happens a lot to us women, which is our voices are continuously ripped away, moved, um, silenced by mainstream white male culture. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 
And as you're listening to us, if you have any questions, we have a new system. It's going to be on the iPad. I'll show you later, Auntie Anne. Um, but it's called... Maybe she'll show you. Sol slow Dot. Yeah. It's called Slow Dot. So you can go on it with your phones, put your questions, and if there's a question that you think really should be asked, you can upgrade the question. So do feel free if you've got any questions. I've got a big one because I look at terminology and go, feminism, mm. what is it? <clears throat> Where does it fit in our world? Does it fit within our black matriarchy? Because that's the sort of positioning we follow. And we follow it not just because we have to, we follow it because of kinship lines and, and, and cultural obligations. Curly, in your world, I know it's probably different to uh, our old world, but how do you see feminism? Does the understanding of white feminism fit in your world? Yeah, I, um, maybe a couple of weeks ago I'd have a different answer for you, but I've since been reading Stan Grant's On Identity, and if you haven't read it, it's the perfect size for the flight to Japan. You can... <laughs> Get it done. Um, so yeah, I was I was on a plane flicking through this book and just like constantly elbowing my boyfriend like oh, and this and this. Um, and he's talking about the the way that we share 99.9% of DNA and then how there's 0.01% of um, separation that exists between us all. In re and those that that small slither is classified around your culture race, gender, age, sexuality, all of those kinds of things. And that we can look and find difference or we can look and find connection. And um, I think a question that's popped up a lot recently around International Women's Day has been, you know, how does white feminism differ from black feminism? And I think what you're talking about, um, Amelia, in regards to that kinship and the way that men and women are... Um, there's men's business, there's women's business. We sit in our own lanes and it allows us both to be, to strengthen each other. Those, those very clearly defined roles are, are powerful things. I'll use my teacher voice. No, is that better? There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, they're powerful things in their own right. But in this book, Stan Grant's talking about the ways that privilege is the problem. So it's not white feminism or black feminism. It's the privilege that exists in both of those spaces. And particularly, um, I think, you know, if we're identifying with the 0.01% of, um, of being white, which I am colonised and coloniser, um, so I get to work in both worlds, then I've all, I'm also afforded the privilege. And it's less about the feminism and more about the privilege that um, is the difference between the two, I think, yeah. So being aware of those things within ourselves um, and knowing where in my world my, my white privilege sits and, um, yeah, where in my world my black privilege sits too because I get to see a lot of things all the time and I'm guided by spirit and I see spirit um, in a way that, yeah, maybe I wouldn't if I only sat on, on the white side, so. Mm. And Bibi, for you, feminism... As you were growing, I guess, you know, in the 70s and so forth, as we started to see these words come up, what, what's your view now of feminism for you as an Aboriginal woman? Well, for me, it's, it, it can be viewed as, OK, I'm, I'm a woman and I need to make a stand. Mm. But you see, as an Aboriginal woman, as, we, as, as you know, we, we understand and we realise is that our culture, it, it was equal. 
And I get that from reading the stories of my grandmother in these journals that um, are tucked away within the government departments and um, in the archives. And I can see that when she grew up on those mission, in that mission in Sherbrooke, they were all equal, those kids. And we're talking thousands of kids that grew up in that, in that structure. So did she impart that onto me? No, she didn't. I think that's defined me and my viewpoint of going to doing law school and reading, well, this is feminism, where does it start, How, what is it about? I, I removed myself from that because I know that it's culturalism. Mm. It's basically what I see, that through the lens of art, the lens of culture, we are one mm. and we've always been one. And I think when I look at my father, who was a boxer, and, uh, but he was more of a lover than a boxer. Mm. I have 28 brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm just staying neutral. So where that <laughs> boxing troupe went? <laughs> and my poor mother was the only woman he ever married. And there's no photographs to test that fact. But they were, they were married in um, Belmain. So on my father's side, he's, he's um, Ewan and um, um, Dungari, Berapai, Waramai. So I'm a saltwater woman and my grandmother's totem is a water lily. So when I paint of her dreaming and that saltwater dreaming right down the coast, it is, it is, it is culturalism to me. And I think that's where I'm going to keep it at that. Mm. Mm. Amelia, things are changing out at Utopia and um, they've introduced a new thing called the Rainbow Gateway. Yes, um, we originally... <laughs> we originally <laughs> That's not what you think. <laughs> <laughs> we originally had a... Um, what are they called? Like job employment programs called My Pathways and we were like, pathway for who? Yeah. Because there's no employment out on country at all. Like, it's all white people running our system out there. So we've got white store managers, a white CEO, and it's, <laughs> it's very confusing sometimes because you're like, how oh, people can do that? Um, they've recently just brought in Rainbow Gateway, which is a, another employment <laughs> area. But they I, I don't know whether they're doing any good. It doesn't seem to um, have affected very much of bringing the employment in or making our people stronger by saying, hey, you can um, grow this particular vegetable here and thus, you know, creating a black market. Mm. So one homeland can grow this, the other can grow kale or pumpkin, whatever. And you're creating this black market of a healthy, sustainable, economical way. Because, I mean, going into the shops, I mean, a, what is it, a one point, a one litre bottle of milk is like about $10. And that's on the communities and it's just, you look at that and you're like, wow, <laughs> okay, how are... Uh, how are we supposed to do that when there is no employment to go in and buy that with our basic card? And what, what has become the white man's commodity is our poverty out on the homelands. Let us not forget that, that our poverty has become their commodity. And they don't want to lose that. They want to make sure that we're still down there in poverty and not advancing in the near future.
And it, it just, it saddens me to see that we have these so-called employment programs coming out there to say, hey, we can get you jobs. For who exactly? Because I, they, our people need the training and understanding, and yet we are not allowed to speak our languages. We have to forget who we are and become a single-minded person by speaking only English. No, you can speak your language wherever you want. Don't, don't be ashamed of it at all. Never be ashamed of that. And that's one of the big things that Amelia's touched on is on the homelands, people are looking at opportunities for the next generation. But there's always these... Uh, it's not a glass ceiling, it's a concrete ceiling that comes down all the time because mm. if we look at um, the regions of homelands, and they're very diverse, but the majority of them have incredible art centres and are known for their art and bring in billions on art. But also they have so much knowledge of bush medicines, of bush foods that... Many restaurants now, you just love it when someone wants to have a bush tucker experience. Mm. And we love you guys in the central desert, but we're saltwater people and no one thinks an oyster is bush tucker. <laughs> but as you can see, there's lots of enterprises and economic independence that could be developed out on the homelands. Mm -hmm. But it's a very difficult thing when there's consistent policies. Ooh, ooh. And I hear you, you know, I. I I wept when that intervention occurred mm. and I weep now that coming from the arts, we work in a sector that supposedly mirrors society and tells the story and yet we've never seen the theatre production or the big moment about what the actual intervention is. Mm. We, ju we just hear these anecdotes and it's crushing uh, seriously, it is crushing people and in some communities people are not only below the poverty line, they are actually starving. And this has happened on quite a number of remote communities. It, it has. It's, it's absolutely... Um, uh, I'm not entirely sure what the word I'm looking for, but it is disgusting as a young person in the 21st century to see that we are still living in a poverty-riddled society, what, what I normally say is we're a third world country within a first world country. Mm. Australia may be first world, but hidden behind the first world is a third world country, which no one talks about because it's hidden. It's blanketed saying, oh, yes, we have all these programs and all these policies to help thrive these communities and that they're not thriving mm. because we're still being kept down. It, it does sadden me because I've lost so many of my elders who have seen this change and their, their hearts are breaking. I've seen my grandmother feel so heartbroken about the fact that our young people are committing suicide at a, at a rate that is just astronomical, because they don't see a bright future at all. There is no bright future for us. That is probably where their minds are at, is like, where do I see myself in five or ten years? 
out of this situation because I am kept there? Where is their hope? Where, where is that? That hope has just vanished from them. And you see that on community and you're just watching your people go through this whole experience and our women are trying to call back their children back onto country and say, be with Mother Earth, be with us. We, we don't need that. What we have now is this. But the climate has changed. We no longer can go hunting because there are hardly any kangaroo. Food is scarce. And the only cheap stuff at the stores uh, is the hot chips, mm. hot chicken, just all the unhealthy foods. Mm. Someone actually bought a half a rock melon for $16 at an opera there. And it, it just amazes me why we put so much on our fresh foods and vegetables when that is so needed, but yet make our junk food absolutely low so they can get diabetes and mm. have health problems later in the future. Mm. Boy, that is such... Yeah, thank mm. you, darling. Um, that is such another conversation, isn't it, about the junk food? We could, we could sit here forever and I'm reminded that we're here because of our black matriarchs. Mm -hmm. We should go to some questions because I've just realised we're almost out of time. So while I'm trying to work out... Anyan, where are you? Where's your granddaughter? While I'm trying to work this out, can I just get each of you just to say in your heart what that black, mac black matriarchal legacy is for you as someone today where you, you do grapple with when you identify you've got to be a strong I've got to be a strong widgeable woman mm. my grandmother was my great grandmother was 3,000th grandmothers it's a walk in the park in a way for me today but then it's a juggle so yeah um my my ma is one of the most resilient people I've ever witnessed in the world and um I think to be able to do what I do um, is very much enabled by being her daughter and watching my mum do all her magical things. So if there's mums in the audiences, you're doing something pretty special, raising little ones to go and keep marching for our women. Um, would it be okay if I read a short poem? It's, uh, it's about the issues that women face and I think it's particularly pertinent for this conversation. I read it last year and the theme was we are marching because we are marching because Parliament doesn't employ our sisters as ministers and sinister lovers take a wife a week to the grave. We are marching to save girls being married too young and unwillfully and because the probability that will be sexually assaulted is one in three. We are marching because though we have degrees in business and medicine, men are employed in our place. We are marching to erase a salary gap that has women paid the same rate as, as men a decade ago. Marching to show solidarity with women locked up for not paying fines. Marching against swines that commit genital mutilation and for the advocation that this cease. We are marching for mothers who face regular discrimination and for every resignation ridden during pregnancy. We are marching for every me too. Me too. We are marching for the option to choose and for every time that we have felt less than goddess. 
We are here to bless the divine feminine within, to tout the success of the women that raised us and to echo their tenacious feet on the streets in resounding agreements that we won't back down until we are equal. Thanks. Black, um, black matriarchy. I'm going to talk really, really quick because I'm also looking at this counter going, oh. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to, to grab a point back because I didn't talk about it at the time, but Aboriginality and feminism. I think it's pretty well known that I am a hardcore feminist who openly identifies publicly as such. Um, and my big reason behind that is that, you know, in a world where white masculine culture is continuously placed on top of everything else as the goal. For me, feminism has always been, um, and particularly Aboriginal feminism, has been the pushback against colonisation, the pushback against everything. Um, you know, the, the, even in the early days when white men were recording Aboriginal culture mm. and writing books about it and getting big academic careers, they always preferenced male knowledge mm. over female when they were observing it. Um, mm. So that white patriarchy has come and implanted itself upon Aboriginal cultures and knowledges and that. Um, sometimes the way we understand ourselves is very patriarchal and very white and unpacking all that to me is is what is incredibly important. So so the matriarchy for me is the is the support of strong Aboriginal women's voices, the, the centering of that, the idea that sovereignty of um, land and sovereignty of body are the same thing because mm. we come from Mother Earth. Yeah. You know, we've got to support our... Um, we've got to support the right to our space and our self-determination whilst we also work on land and we work on country. And, yeah, it's... I, I think, you know, in all of that sort of... I've got a whole heap of ideas and I know it's coming across as a little garbled, but... But the centering of black women's voices in a world where it is so white and so man and so masculine is is it for me. It's what I do. Um, for me, black matriarchal, I have the very lovely privilege of living with a my grandmother, who is my role model, my rock, and everything that connects me to my people. I feel very privileged to have her. So for me to speak about that is to speak about my people and my grandmother. I'm very lucky to have the grandmother's law passing on to me now. Mm. I'll probably just say two words, well, probably two sentences. It would be Doreen May Barber is my feminist. Mm -hmm. She's my rock. She's my saviour. And she is my strength and my vitality. And to give me the resilience that I've had to go through as a black woman, as a strong black woman, come from a, a line of strong black woman, women, I would just honestly say that um, I paint her voice every time I touch a paintbrush and it goes onto that canvas. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, ladies. And we've got time for questions. So 
This is fantastic, actually. Thank you all so very much for, for being so active with this program. Coming in with a 77, wanting to know that the balance with walking the worlds that these ladies live in and understanding how as white feminists you can get involved, but what do they do for joy? That's sort of three questions all put into one. <laughs> so what do you do for joy? <laughs> and who's she? No. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Anyone want to...? I, I am a big fan of the Melbourne punk scene. <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time at live gigs, yeah. That's mm. what I do for joy. And I travel. I travel because getting out of Australia and having that space from this, <laughs> this dominant culture is healing. It's healing. Going yeah. back to country is healing as well, but in a different way. Getting out of this and having that lens to look into it and see what's going on revitalises me. <laughs> Next. I, I ride a motorbike. Um, awesome. Yes, yeah. I saw that great image. Yeah, um, and I love to surf, and I think both of those take me back to country. Yeah. I love riding through the trees. I love, yeah, being out in the salt water. I think my joy is I watch a lot of anime. Awesome. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, um, I write poems, so... Mm. Yeah, that, those are my two joys. Gee, I must be the odd one out because I love karaoke singing. Beautiful young Aboriginal women sitting in the front. <laughs> There's a few karaoke singers there too. They they what's karaoke singers. Yes, what is your song? Yeah, what's yeah. your song? <laughs> Simply the best. Tina Turner. <laughs> Hair. Got the hair. I got the legs. She's got the legs and the ankles for it. So. Oh. I'm not going to tell you where I go and sing because I don't want to perform. I don't, don't want to walk <laughs> And that other question is, and thank you, one, the fact that you've come to this session shows us that people want to have this dialogue and, and hear from this gaze what black matriarchy and feminism is to Aboriginal people. So I applaud you for coming. And many of the questions have been about how do we work together yeah. with the audience? How do we find space? I think to find the space right now as lovely First Nations and non-First Nations people to come together would be a healing process. We need to heal ourselves with each other because some of us still live in the past. We cannot, can no longer live in the past anymore. The past can live in us, but we need to come together. I've lost it. I, I think all I've got is, you know, an extension of what you're saying. There's never been any sort of agreement between the colonisers and the first peoples of this land. Mm. So that's what people should be fighting for. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I want to work with grounded people. I want to work with somebody who knows that it's not their place and um, with someone who's willing to walk next to me, not for me. 
And I think more on, a, I guess, a, a legal note, it's in terms of culture, you know, free prior informed consent is something that's a partnership, it's a respect, and the only way we're going to move forward to heal is to understand each other and to do that within the spirit of graciousness, grace, gracefulness. Yes. And I think that's the most important thing. And I think our black, black, I find it so hard saying that word. <laughs> our black grandmothers <laughs> were so elegant, mm. so graceful, mm. and you can't imagine the lives they went through and the changes that occurred in their everyday. But I think the greatest way forward is knowing that knowledge that they taught us, understanding and reading country, but more importantly, Please value Aboriginal women. We are not valued. When an, an African, uh, South African comedian can come to our country late last year and do a show where he thinks people will buy tickets in this country with an Aboriginal joke that says every other woman in the world has beauty bar Aboriginal women. Mm. What was mm. that? Noah. Trevor, Trevor Noah. Trevor yeah, bloody Noah. I wrote on that. But what that said to me when that joke was told oh. and the shot was of the audience and that hurt me more than anything because the audience were laughing thinking it was highly amusing that Aboriginal women were the ugliest women on the planet but they must have special skills because he indicated us playing a didgeridoo which we could then do on the male species. And that's horrendous. And that said to me, we are not valued as women. Mm. Now, we know in society, women aren't valued. When we talk about domestic violence, we should be talking about women and violence because violence happens on our streets every single day. There are stories now about the women that have been murdered in this country that haven't been investigated, that are being um, similar to what's happened in Canada with the Trail of Tears. Mm. So I think the way forward is walking side by side and valuing humanity. We have the greatest compassion as a people. We look at humanity and nurturing our country and earth and it's about the stewardship so I think understanding that stewardship and walking together is a great way f forward. Mm. Now, I've said my little bit. Thanks to the panel. Can we please applaud them? And thank you. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.